0: Last week we started just a little, it's called a mini-series, a little mini-series on impacting people for Christ. And everything that Anthony shared this morning really ties right into this study that we're doing out of Mark chapter 2. Kind of a familiar story to many of you, and we're taking this very powerful, true story of a healing of a paralyzed man, we're looking at the men that God used to bring this man to Jesus and some of the qualities that they had. So, Mark chapter 2, if you would just follow along, we'll jump right into the Word. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. And soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. And while he was preaching God's Word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Some of the teachers the religious, of the religious law who were sitting there, they thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And by the way, that is true. Only God can forgive sins. Amen? But Jesus forgave this man. Now, Jesus is going to do something here to prove and authenticate who he was. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked to them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove, I love this, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. We serve an awesome God, don't we? Amen. By the way, Jesus is God. That was the whole point of what is going on in in this passage. The whole point of the story was Jesus was proving that he truly was God in the flesh. And obviously they did not like this. And obviously they were not his fans, right? But Jesus proved who he was. As we've been studying this story, we're looking at impacting people for Christ. And what we realized and we studied last week is is that there was a number of qualities that these men had. Now, most importantly, if we're going to be able to impact people for Christ, we cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. Amen? We understand that, that we cannot do a work for God without the Holy Spirit. Jesus performed miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot function outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, but... But we do realize is that God used these men to impact this man for Jesus Christ. And there was a number of qualities that they had. As a way of review, I just want to remind you that the first one they had was this. They had conviction. They were convinced that Jesus Christ was and is the answer. And we studied a little bit of why we believe that to be true. Because the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus, just a few days before that he was there... And remember, he healed Peter, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He healed her of a sickness. And then word got out. And the Bible says that many people from all around came and Jesus healed many and he cast out demons. What we see is this, is that that Jesus began to perform these miracles and transform people's lives. Jesus left to go to another area. And when he came back, word got out that Jesus was back. And the Bible says that they thronged the home of Peter that they come back and they begin to throng the house. The people are there, there's such a great crowd that no one can get in. And then these men, they bring their friend, possibly friend, or this man to Jesus. You see, what I truly believe in my heart is this, is that those men that brought this man to Jesus, that that they, they had an encounter with Jesus themselves. It's very possible that maybe one of them was blind and because of of the the miraculous work of Jesus Christ, he was able to see. Maybe one of these men were one of those who had a demon cast out of them. We don't know. Maybe there was another one who also had some type, maybe deaf. Uh, maybe some type of uh, uh, themselves paralyzed, but Jesus performed miracles and Jesus transformed their lives. And when they encountered Jesus, they realized, you know something? Jesus did this for me. He can do it for him. Amen. Amen. They were convinced That Jesus was the answer. May I say to you that I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ is the answer for our community. That Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? He is not a way or a truth. He is the way. He is the truth and He is the life. He is the way. I am convinced with all of my heart and all of my soul that Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the answer. You know how I know this? Because he transformed my life. I've had an encounter with Jesus Christ and I know that Jesus Christ is real. And his spirit lives within me. And by the way, if you believe that, you say good hearty amen today. If you know Jesus is real and you've encountered Jesus Christ and you sense his spirit and his moving and working in your life and you've experienced the forgiveness of sin like this man did, man, you can't but help but be convinced that Jesus could help your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your relative, your co-worker, the people you come in contact with. Jesus is the answer. Amen. They were convinced. They were convinced. And they were going to do whatever it took to bring this man to Jesus Christ. And they had compassion. They had compassion for this man. As we studied last week, the Bible tells us that Jesus was a man of compassion. In Matthew 9, it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Through the Gospels, Matthew 14, it says Jesus was moved with compassion. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40 and 41, it says he, once again, out of compassion, it motivated him, it moved him to act. May I say to you that if you and I are convinced that Jesus Christ is the answer, then it will move us, it will motivate us, and compassion will move us to bring other people to Jesus Christ. Can I say that's why Anthony loads up the youth group on Friday nights, because he's convinced that Jesus Christ is the answer for enterprise amen and so it moves him to action it moves him to load up young people and to allow them to experience God moving and working in their lives and to go and to be a blessing to someone else you see when you're convinced that Jesus Christ is the answer and you've experienced him I truly believe that what happens is this is that we begin to have a burden and a compassion for those who do not know Christ. The book of Jude says this, and some having compassion making a difference. Jesus was moved with compassion. It motivated Him to act and to move and to sacrifice for you and I. You see, if we have a true burden and a true compassion for those that are without Christ, then it will motivate us and will move us to action. I like some quotes, Francis Chan, I really love and respect this man. He says this, as the church, he says, We become dangerously comfortable. Believers ooze with wealth and let their addictions to comfort and security numb the radical urgency of the gospel. Compassion ought to move us and motivate us as a church and as a body of Christ, to get out of our comfort zone and to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. That is what we are called to do. I'm reminded in our study this, uh, a week ago or so, that Blackaby challenged, challenged a young group of college kids. He said, let's pray about starting a college ministry. And as he was speaking to his college students, I remember him saying this, it was kind of a quote, but he said this, And it's so important. He says, Listen, if someone, as you are in in, in seeking God, if someone begins a, a spiritual conversation with you, he said, This stop everything that you're doing, cancel any plans, and engage in that conversation. Do some of you remember this study? And so this young lady, she took note of that. And so she was in class, and as she was in class on this college campus, she was sitting there, and at the end of class, another young lady said to her, Are you a Christian? And she was kind of taken back and kind of shocked. And she says, well, yes, yes, I am. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so she began to ask her questions. The young lady began to struggle because she knew that she had to go to her next class. But she remembered the words of Blackaby that said this. If someone ever begins a spiritual conversation, you cancel all of your plans. And then you engage in that conversation because God is at work. And he's inviting you into his work. Somebody say amen. Amen. And so she stopped. She did what every good college student did. She skipped her next class. She skipped her class. Now there would be some who would judge her and say she shouldn't be skipping her class. She needs her education. But can I tell you something? Educations are important. But may I say to you, a soul lasts for all eternity. And so she stopped. And she paused. And she said, well, I'm going to listen to instruction that I was told. So she went and she sat down and they began to talk and through that whole class period, they began to talk and she found out that this young lady... That she had 11 or 12 other friends, college students, who were also seeking for God. And they were trying to study the Bible, but there was no true believers in the group, only seekers. And so what happened was this. She was connected to that group, and through that group, a college ministry was started. And many people came to know Christ on that campus. Because she was willing to engage in a gospel conversation. Compassion will motivate us to move out of our comfort zones, to be burdened. Jesus said it like this. He said this. He He says, the shepherd will leave the 99 to do what? What will the shepherd do? He will leave the 99 on the hillside to do what? To chase after what? One lost sheep. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Jesus tells us what it means. Jesus says that the most important thing is the lost sheep. Are you with me? He says there is more joy in the presence of the angels over what? One sinner who repents than the 99 just persons who need no repentance. The Lord is glorified when people are coming to Jesus Christ. He is far more concerned, listen to me, about the lost sheep than the 99 safe in the fold. Come on now. But we have gotten comfortable in the fold. The flock has gotten comfortable. We sit in our holy huddles. And we want to sit in a holy huddle. And we can call it all kinds of things. But may I say something to you? If we are not engaged in the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, then we are not true disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. We have gotten fat We have sat around and we have consumed the word of God and we've eaten the word of God and we've become consumers, but we are no longer doing what God has called us to do. I love what Francis Chan said. He said this, Christians are like manure. Spread them out and they help everything grow. But keep them in one big pile and they stink horribly. (laughs) Somebody say amen there. I love Francis Chan. The next thing that he, I see here is that these men, they had some chemistry, they had cooperation, that they were willing to work together. I just can only imagine when one of them said, I have a great idea, we can't get in, let's go up on the roof and tear a hole in it. And there was probably two or three of them that said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. The man's already paralyzed, and if he falls and lands on his head, and he gets a concussion, oh my goodness... But somewhere along the line, someone said, okay, you know, maybe they took a vote. But somewhere along the line, they said, okay, let's do this. And so they worked together and they were cooperating. And there had to be some type of chemistry. When you coach, there's something about chemistry. There's something about cooperation. And so these men, they had to cooperate. They had to work together. They were moved by compassion to carry this man, to take his mat, maybe put some poles in this mat. I don't know what it looked like. But I do know this is that they had to work together. To get the job done. By the way, churches need to be working together and not competing amongst each other. Amen. And the Bible tells us in this passage, I see at least five times, at least in three, in this verses three and four alone, where it says, they, 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 there, they. And when the Lord saw their faith, they were cooperative, they were working together. The Bible tells us in Psalm one thirty three one through three. Notice this passage here. It says this: How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's hand, and it ran down his beard into the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon, in the falls of the mountain of Zion, and there the Lord has pronounced His blessing, even. Life everlasting. The Bible tells us that it's beautiful when we are working together in harmony. These men worked together. They were cooperative. And they had a cooperative effort to see that this man was brought to Jesus. The Bible warns us in Proverbs 22.10. It says that sometimes harmony is something worth struggling for and battling for. It says throw out the mocker. And fighting goes too. Quarrels and insults will disappear. Harmony must be always fought for and battled for. Unity and cooperation must be something. And sometimes, sometimes it's, it, it's a dangerous thing and it's a struggle. Have you ever been in a workplace where you have that person who's just critical and negative and they bring all that negative energy. And the day that they call in sick, everybody in the office is like, yes! It's gone! This too is what the scripture says. He says, get rid of that and watch God move and watch God work. There is no perfect church. Acts chapter 6. We see the very early church, the very first church in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Notice what happened. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied. That's a good problem. Amen? The church rapidly multiplied. didn't say addition. It said multiplication. Now, I'm not a math genius but i know that multiplication that's a that's exponential right that's like really happening as the believers rapidly multiplied there was rumblings of of discontent the greek speaking believers complained about the hebrew speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food so is there a perfect church no but was there an issue there yes So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. By the way, let me emphasize this. Can you say those words with me? Of who? All the believers. All the believers. What's best for the whole congregation? Are you with me this morning? Amen? You'll never see anywhere in scripture where one committee runs a church. Can somebody say amen? We are all the body of Christ. What was best for the church was decided by the church. I'll tell you what's dangerous is this, is that there are mega churches, a lot of churches, where there's five or six or seven people who decide every decision for the church and it's never brought before the congregation. That is not of God. How did they handle it here? How did they handle it? They brought it to the church. Amen? That's what the Bible says. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. And they said, we apostles... What should they spend their time doing? Can you say it with me? Doing what? Teaching the word of God. And not doing what? Running a food program. (laughs) And so the brothers selected seven men. They choose out seven men. Who were well respected. All full of the spirit and wisdom. And will give them this responsibility. Then we the apostles will spend our time. Say it with me. In what? Teaching the word. What's the number one responsibility of a pastor to do what? To pray and to preach. What's my number one job responsibility at Red Hills Church? To do what? Pray and preach. Should we be willing to serve? Should we be willing to go and reach out to people and help people? Absolutely. What's the number one responsibility though? To do what? Pray and preach. In fact, they said it's not for us to be distracted by these other things. Because this is the most important thing. What is the most important thing that Pastor Joe can do at Red Hills Church? Pray and preach. Should I be willing to serve a table? Absolutely. Should I be trying to be there for people's needs? Absolutely. But these men, you could kind of, let's be honest. If this was done in most churches, these men would be run out of most churches. Come on now. Are you with me? If you're with me, somebody say amen. amen. You know what? They want CEOs for pastors now. Uh-uh. You know what my job is to do? is to pray to pray for this church and to pray for this community, to pray. The Bible says to do the work of an evangelist, to go out into the community. Yes, a shepherd is also to protect the flock. Sometimes it's to protect the flock from wolves that want to come in and tear it apart. Sometimes it's to protect the body of Christ from false doctrine and false teaching and error that will come in and wreak havoc among God's people. That's your responsibility. Yes, it's to to try to be there for the sick and other things, but may I say to you, number one responsibility of a pastor is to pray and to preach the word of God and many pastors have gotten so distracted they're no longer doing those things should I be willing to help paint the building absolutely how many of you have seen me help paint this building some of you are fixing all my mistakes that I've made (laughs) am I hauling junk down to the dumpsters absolutely Gary you know this where's Gary he's in here somewhere he's out in security do we go make hospital visits? Absolutely, we should do those things. We should be willing to do all those things. But can I tell you something? Nothing should distract us from the most important calling because God has called us to teach the word and to pray. And I don't mean this to sound wrong or rude or arrogant and you could take it how you want it. But can I say this? Listen, be carefully. Those apostles had the calling of God on their lives. No one else could do that call. And with God, when God calls a pastor to a church, he's called to pray for his church, to preach, to love the people, and that's the call that he has upon him. Other people can do other things, but not just anyone can do what God's called the man of God to do. Does that make sense? And so they went to the church, and here was the result. Though, (laughs) they choose out seven men; they take care of the responsibilities. Verse 5, everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, uh, Procurus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an early convert to the Jewish faith. Notice this these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to be spread. The numbers of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. What was the result of that meeting? What was the result of what took place there? God's word was multiplied and the church grew. Amen? Amen. Is that not what we're here and called to do? To do his work. So there was some division and there was some strife. They called upon the church, they worked through this strife. It was not a perfect church, but the church was in harmony. And the needs of the body were met. All through scripture we'll see that God works this way. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 1-9, how God uses different people. In First Corinthians 3, 1-9, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I could not talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready. Ouch. (laughs) For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. Notice what he says. You're jealous of one another. And you quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, well, I'm a follower of Paul. And another says, well, I'm a follower of Apollos. Aren't you acting just like the people of the world? After all, he says, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work that the Lord gave us. Notice what he said. Here's this cooperation. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it. But it's who? It's God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that it's God that makes the seed grow. The one who plants, the one who waters, notice these words, work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers and we are God's field and you are God's building. He says we're working together. Some plant and some water, some pray You know, some give and some, you know, some serve and some minister. We all have a unique responsibility in the church, in the work of God. Amen? One last passage, and it's in Philippians. When we think of cooperation, it doesn't just stop here. It's churches working together. It's what I would encourage you to pray about and think about is the importance of missions. In Philippians chapter 4 Verses 14 to 20, Paul writes to this church in Philippi. He says this, even so you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Paul was in prison, and they had sent money to him. And you'll see here, he talks about how they'd sent money to help him. And he was obviously a missionary and evangelist. And he says this, and as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I was first brought the good news. And then I traveled on from Macedonia, and no other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you, notice this, to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. He's speaking about giving and really in essence missions giving. Paul was a missionary and he said as you read there you'll see that numerous times the church gave to him so that he could do the work of God. So he could do the mission work that God had called him to do. And what's interesting he says is this is I do this. And he says, what happens is you're being rewarded. You're going to be blessed. We're we're doing this together. You'll see that even when Jesus was here, that there were a group of women who ministered and gave to Jesus. Paul had a group of women, uh, Lydia, who sold fine linen and purple, and she would sell the goods and she would give them to the apostle Paul so that he could do the work that he was doing. They knew that maybe they couldn't do what Paul was doing, but they could help support him in what he was doing. Does this make sense? They were working together. Cooperation. You see, if we're going to reach a lost world with the gospel, we must have cooperation. We must be working together. That is why I love missions. That's why I love missionaries. Wasn't it awesome to have the Edgewood team, a church from Kentucky, come out here and be willing to help serve here and be a blessing to our church? That's cooperation. When I think about Samaritan's Purse, and I think about these boxes. What is it? It's people here in the United States and other countries who are fortunate enough to be able to provide needs, provide a, a, a Christmas box that sent and missionaries take all around the world. And with it, they receive, a, yes, a gift and yes, a blessing. But what do they also receive? They receive the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loves them. And he sent his son to die for them. How awesome is that? That's cooperating and working together. In just a short time, we as a church will be talking about Lottie Moon. It's a Christmas offering. And that Christmas offering, Lottie Moon offering, helps basically missionaries around the world. Even within our own missions, we support orphanages. We support care and share here in our local community to help people in need. We support Various organizations of people who are getting the gospel. You see, that's what cooperation is. It's not just us only taking care of Red Hills, but Red Hills saying we have a responsibility to cooperate with missionaries and to cooperate with others. This next Easter, we'll have Annie Armstrong offering, and we will begin to encourage to give to that. And that helps with the North American Mission Board. By the way, when you go outside, there's a trailer out there. It's called Color Country What's the rest of it? Color country. It's an association of our churches. And we work together. And so we have that trailer. What do we do? We cooperate. We use that trailer to, for events like what we're going to do next week. And so we pull the resources and we work together as a cooper, in a cooperative effort. Does that make sense? So our churches are coming together, striving together, working together to get the gospel into our community a cooperative missions missions is on the heart of god when we think about when we think about this who was the first missionary ever sent somebody just said it who was it first missionary ever sent was the lord jesus christ himself he left heaven to come to earth so that you and i could be impacted through his love. You know, each and every one of us, we're, we're technically missionaries because I can't go to where you work. I can't necessarily be in everyone's neighborhood and neither can other pastors or other people, but God has you where he has you to have an impact and to reach the people that he has put in your life. Amen? Oh, may we be moved with compassion for this world. May it move us to even be willing to be involved in our giving. Our giving is an act of worship to God. When we give, it only doesn't take care of Red Hills Church. But when we give, the money that we give also goes to mission projects and missionaries to get the gospel into all the world. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and have a word of prayer.